thank you, everybody. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. I'm David G. I'm an alcoholic and an addict of many sorts. Grateful to be here tonight. Grateful for a recovery date of August 8th, 1994. Super happy to be here studying Chapter 10, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to the employers. And I feel that since some of us have, either have or do spend anywhere from 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day in this area of life, we probably need some instructions on how to live if we were to be successful. I don't know about you, but I know that about me. Very easy for me to get into resentment with my employer. I think that he ought to do what I tell him to do, regardless whether he's my boss or not. That's just the alcoholic in me. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it would be a whole lot better place if, if he would do so. And he doesn't always do that. And so we clash and, you know, self comes to the surface. And But the good thing is Step 10 has been a very useful tool for me in this area of life with my employer, with my family, with my wife, with my brothers and sisters in recovery. It has been a lifesaver. It really has been. One of the examples I use whenever I lead a new man through Step 10 is it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And for some of us, we add the word lust. That's found on page 84 for anyone who doesn't. And one of the examples I use with all the new guys is, at the end of that, it's asking you to turn your thoughts to someone you can help. Now, my employer, and this was right after he first started, uh, he and I got into a heated argument one day on the phone. And I seen that coming to be a resentment, so I just kind of backed away from the situation, excused myself from the phone call. I asked God to remove that because I seen it coming on, just like it asked us to do in step 10. The other thing that I did was I sent out a text, you know, I've, I've spotted resentment, I've asked God to remove it, and I'm going to turn my thoughts to someone I can help. So I didn't owe an apology because I hadn't taken action based on that thought. Thank God, that's something I always used to do immediately. I was just emotional, that emotional charge. But this time I did something different. I backed away from that, and I asked God to remove it. And I turned my thoughts toward washing and waxing his car and cleaning it up for he and his family so they could go on a nice vacation. Now, he lives in Kansas. I'm in Oklahoma. That's about a 300-mile difference. But whether he's 300 miles away or he's one mile away, the chances of me ever washing and waxing his car so he could go on a nice vacation is slim to none. Because see, it doesn't ask us to take action. It's good if we can do that. But it says to turn our thoughts towards someone we can help. And that's what I did. I turned my thoughts toward doing that for him. And when I did that, feeling of resentment was replaced with a little bit of serenity and peace. And I was able to make it through that without a big ordeal. And I bring that up only because we're in this chapter tonight and it's the employers. Now, this isn't the only chapter that wasn't written by Bill in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it is definitely one of the two. The doctor's opinion, of course, was written by Silkworth. And this here was written by a man that they called Hank P. Now, his name was Hank Parkhurst, P-A-R-K-H-U-R-S-T. And he was a salesman for Stanford Oil in New Jersey. And he made a very good living. There is no doubt for that day and time, you know, with the Great Depression and everything going on, he made a great living. Well, like most of us, he loses his job over drinking or acting out or whatever the case may be for him. It was drinking 
And what happened was he ended up in Towns Hospital. And that's where Bill found him, and Bill helped him to recover in 1935. So with him being the businessman that he was, and I'm sure that he had a lot of help as far as pushing the financial part along to, to having this book written, it would only make sense why Bill would pick him to write the chapter to the employer. So there's a, in the doctor's opinion, and I'll just flip back over here to that, it, it gives us one of two stories toward the end of that chapter. And on Roman numeral 31, which is XXXI, I'm not real good with Roman numerals, but I'm pretty sure that's what that is. Roman numeral 31, the doctor says this. He says, what is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About a year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated from chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed for him that there was no hope. I mean, where does a belief like that come from other than self telling us we're doomed, it's over, there'll never be any hope for you. Anyway, it says following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. But here's the key. The question at the top, the first four words, is what is the solution? This is the solution. He accepted the plan outlined in the book, and that's what many of us have done here. And so this man that they will continue to talk about it, he goes on to say, you know, a year later, he called to, he called to see me. I experienced something very strange. I knew him by name and feature, recognized all this. But from a trembling, despair, and nervous wreck, here, here was a man that was brimming over with self-contentment and reliance and, and all that. Well, this was Hank P. This was Hank P. that wrote chapter 10 that the doctor's talking about there. So when we jump into chapter 10, we want to keep that in mind if that's how he was. Now, Hank, like the rest of us, has a lot of self. <laughs> We're going to see that in this book. For a long time, I wouldn't read chapter 10. I had a resentment against chapter 10. I think chapter 10 ended up on my personal inventory. Resentment's actually. But I think that the resentment that I had against him is because I was the same way at one point in my life. So let's look closely at this chapter tonight. And we'll see if we can't pull some good things out of here that might not only help us in our work. Many that are here are retired. Uh, but it could help us in anything that we do. Once I can get past Hank and the self, the condition in him, then I can begin to see the message that he's trying to relate here. So let's see what he says. Chapter 10 to employers. Among many employers nowadays, we think one member who has spent much of his life in the world of big business. He has hired and fired hundreds of men, and he knows the alcoholic as the employer sees him. His present views ought to prove exceptionally useful to businessmen everywhere, but let him tell you. I was at one time the assistant manager of a corporation, and we've already established that that was Stanford Oil in New Jersey. And employing 6,600 men, that's a lot of men. One day my secretary came in to say that Mr. B insisted on speaking with me, and I told her 
to say that I was not interested. I had warned him several times that he had but one more chance. And not long afterward, he had called me from Hartford on two successive days. So drunk, he could hardly speak. Well, I don't know why that should be a surprise to anybody who knows an alcoholic. I mean, that's just kind of what we do. I told him he was through finally and forever, so he fires the man. Here's what happens. The secretary returned to say that it was not Mr. B on the phone. It was Mr. B's brother, and he wished to give me a message. I still expected to plead for clemency, but these words came through the receiver. I just wanted to tell you that Paul jumped from a hotel window in Hartford last Saturday. He left us a note saying that you were the best boss he ever had and that you were not in any way to blame. Now, I don't know about you. I've had some guys that I've sponsored, sadly and tragically, end their life because they just could not or would not see this way of life. It's a terrible thing. I would really like to think that, God forbid, that was ever me. The last thing I'd want to do is leave a note for my boss telling him how damn good he was. That's just probably wouldn't happen. You know what I'm saying? I just don't think that would be anything that was in my mind, but it was here. And so he says, another time I opened a letter which laid on my desk, a newspaper clipping fell out. It was the obituary of one of the best salesmen I ever had. After two weeks of drinking, he placed the toe, his toe on the trigger of a loaded shotgun, the barrel in his mouth. See, that's the end result of this. If we don't have the spiritual awakening, we always, always return back to self. And after a period of time, you know, the end result of, of relapse is always death. And in page 58 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it tells us that there's two kinds of people that aren't going to make it in AA. And let's take a look at that real quick. I don't want to jump around too much and, and kill a bunch of time, but, but I think it's important that we look at this. It's read every time that we go to an AA meeting or any kind of meeting, especially in person. It says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those that do not recover, and if we do not recover here, there's only one other option. We die. There's two classes of people. There's those that cannot or those that will not completely give themselves to the simple program. So whether this man on page 137 was a cannot or a will not, it doesn't matter. He didn't recover. He died. And that's the end result of this here. A loaded shotgun, the barrel in his mouth, he pulled the trigger. He said, I discharged him for drinking six weeks before. So still another experience. Here's three experiences now. A woman's voice came faintly over long distance from Virginia. She wanted to know if her husband's company insurance was still in force four days before he had hanged himself in a woodshed. Now I can very much relate to that. I had a young man that I sponsored here in Oklahoma. I love this guy. He came in, he ended up getting sober. He had a spiritual awakening. He got four years sober for the first time in his life. He went back to sleep to self because he wasn't he would not practice steps 10 and 11 and he, and he wouldn't do 12 and he ended up going back to sleep and he relapsed and then he'd come back and he'd get a year and he'd get a beer and one night he'd done the very same thing he hung himself in his closet and um you know the the, the voices within just get to be too much after a period of time and, and then we do one or two things we either recover or we die and so this book when it tells me you know i take that very seriously today he said, I've been obliged to discharge him from drinking, though he was a brilliant, alert, and one of the best organizers I've ever known. Here's what turns me off. I hate P to begin with. Now, I come to love him later on. Don't get me wrong, but right here, I don't, I don't like him at all. Here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. 
to me, that almost sounds like he feels he has the power to have saved them had he done something different. And I don't know about the alcoholics in your area, but the alcoholics in mine, we are beyond human aid. Now, a man can guide us. He can help us. He can be all this. But if it doesn't come from a loving God, a source, the creator of the universe, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter what man, how much he knows or what he didn't know. They're not going to be able to save us here. They're just not. Those men didn't die because he did not understand alcoholism as he does now. They died because they suffer from a spiritual disease brought on by a human condition, and that's called self, and it's out to kill us. And in the end, that's exactly what it does, and that's exactly what it did here. had nothing to do with him. So he says, what irony. I became an alcoholic myself, and but for the intervention of an understanding person. See, I don't see anything about God. And please prove me wrong if you can. I've been reading this book and studying this book and, and trying to share this book with others for almost 30 years. And if you see the, thou, creator, source, God, infinite wisdom, anything that relates to God in this chapter, please let me know. Because I've studied up and down, back and forth, back and forth, and I don't see it here. This is the only chapter in the book that I don't see that in. So for me, you know, that starts sending my head in another way. I have to pray and ask for spiritual understanding. So it says, but for the intervention of an understanding person, forget God, you know, or any of that. I might have followed in their footsteps. My downfall cost the business community unknown thousands of dollars for it takes real money to train a man for an executive position. I agree with that. This kind of waste goes unabated. We think the business fabric is shot through with a situation which might be helped by understanding all around. Now, nearly every modern employer feels a moral responsibility for the well-being of his health. And he tries to meet these responsibilities that he has not always done so for the alcoholic is easily understood. I mean, we are very aggravating people. I mean, just ask anybody that has lived with us for just a little while, and we know how to drive you batshit crazy in just a short amount of time and don't even really mean to be doing that. That's just kind of how the way it is. So very easily understood. To him, the alcoholic has often seemed a fool of the first magnitude. Now, it only seemed that way. It doesn't mean that he is that way. It only seemed that way. So I want to pay close attention to these words and the way that they're being outlined here. Because of the employee's special ability or his strong personal attachment to him, the employer has sometimes kept such a man at work long beyond a reasonable period. I think it's the same way for the sexaholic. I really do. At least it has been in my case. Now, I've been in a supervisor's position for a long time in the oil and gas industry here in the U.S. And you run into all kinds of personalities and all kinds of people that you have an opportunity to, to carry this message to and to try to help. And some of them are the most, they're the smartest men that I've ever met. I mean, they're just, they're so damn smart, they're dumb. And it's, I mean, it's, it's insane at the abilities that they have. And it's hard to let a man like that go. I mean, there comes a point when you have to. But it's hard to let a man like that go because an employee of that caliber is hard to find. But if he's, you know, you're, you're only as strong as your weakest link is what they always would tell us in the wolf field. And so if he's the weakest link, you know, until he gets help for his problem, then it doesn't matter how good of a hand he is. I mean, he, he, it's worthless. So really the essence of all growth 
is a willingness to make a change for the better and then an unremitting willingness to shoulder whatever responsibility this entails. And for us, this entails doing our job and doing, doing what we're called to do. But when I'm under the weather, I'm unable to do that. So it says some employers have tried every known remedy in only a few instances has there been a lack of patience and tolerance. I have met many employees who have been very patient and very tolerant. The good thing about most of them being a practicing alcoholic is they don't really understand alcoholism or they don't really understand sexaholism. So as a practicing alcoholic, I would use pity, I would use this, and I would come up with all these stories to support all of that. I can remember at one time I worked at a nearby place here, and and I can remember I was gone for a week, and I show up, and I got a black eye, and my chin's hanging over to one side, and I've been in a barroom fight and all that stuff, you know. And So I start telling them this sad story of how I wrecked my car, and the Oklahoma City area, and I really didn't have the money to get in. And, and the old lady that worked there, she was so sweet. She was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. You need to. And her daughter was like, he's full of crap, you know. I mean, he's been out drinking. We need to fire him, and you know. And the lady wouldn't do that. And what I did that day was I zoned in on her patience, her tolerance, her kindness, and her love. And I used that for a long time to come until they finally ended up letting me go. They just... I could not, I was unemployable whenever I drank like that. I just couldn't hold a job. I didn't have a problem getting one. I just couldn't hold one. So it says that there's been a lack of patience and tolerance. And we who have imposed on the best of employers, and that was me, can scarcely blame them if they have been short with us. Now here, for instance, is a typical example. An officer of one of the largest banking institutions in America knows I no longer drink. One day he told me about an executive of the same bank who, from his description, was undoubtedly alcoholic. This seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful, so I spent two hours talking about alcoholics. Now, from what we know of this book, and I'm sure this book or either the contents of it were going around, and I'm pretty sure that that's what you do. So if you'll join me for just a quick second on page 90, this is the interview process that we do prior to working with anybody. And I want to read just a little bit of it. And if you see where it says that we spend two hours talking about alcoholism, shut me down. I want to know that because I'm pretty sure I don't see that here. When you discover a prospect or a sponsee, as we would call it today, for Alcoholics Anonymous or Sexholics Anonymous or whatever it is, find out all you can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, do not waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. This man may have very well done that over there. The advice is given for his family also. So we see that we do give advice on some level here. They should be patient, realizing that we're dealing with a sick person. There's no indication he wants to stop, have someone, a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife, he did not do with his behavior, yada, yada. And you can go on down the list. But nowhere does it say that we spend two hours talking about alcoholism. So I see that he's kind of off track here. So he says, I spent two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady, and describe some of the symptoms and results as well as I could. Now, we know what some of those things are today because of self. 
We know there's anger. We know there's resentment. We know there's self-esteem. We know there's fear. We know there's pride. We know there's ambition. We know the symptoms. But for me to sit here and tell you what those symptoms are really doesn't make a hill of beans one way or another. But when I ask you how you react once your pride is threatened, once your self-esteem, someone trashes that, you begin to tell me the behavior surrounding that, then we can begin to show you the actions of alcoholism based on the symptoms. And this all comes from self. And so he says, his comment was very interesting, but I'm sure this man has done drinking. He's just returned from a three months leave of absence. He has taken the cure. That's what they called it in the 1930s, taking the cure. You would go take the cure and you would come back and many of them never made it again. But he says he has taken the cure. He looks fine. And to quench the matter, the board of directors told him that this was his last chance, which if you're an alcoholic like I am, I will take that to heart for about maybe three to four days. But the mind's always going to return and, and convince me that it's a pretty good idea to drink or act out or use or whatever the case may be. And I'm going to take action based on that thought. And self is going to lead me right down that hole again. And there goes the job. There goes the family. And we all know that story all too well. So he says, the only answer that I could make was that if the man followed the usual pattern, that he would go on a bigger bus than ever. I believe that. I felt this was inevitable and wondered if the bank was doing the man an injustice. Well, he says he felt. We know that feelings are a part of self whenever they're, whenever they're not in the right way. But nevertheless, he says, why not bring him into contact with some of our alcoholic crowd? Absolutely. Let's take him to a meeting. Let's introduce him to the fellowship. I bring a brother into the Freedom Seekers. Let's introduce him to step 10. Let's show him what we do. So he says he might have a chance. And I think really that's what we're looking for more than anything is that he have a chance. He says, I pointed out that I'd had nothing to drink, whatever, for three years. Now, I think that's a very good thing to tell a man to show some kind of inspiration. But as I was reading with a friend today, we see that the word inspiration really connects to being in spirit. So if I'm in spirit and I'm wanting to give inspiration, I'm not going to do a whole lot of that about telling you not what I've not done to drink for three years or 28 years in my case now. I want to tell you how I recovered from self. We're drinking and acting out and lust and booze and overeating and undereating and all. It doesn't exist there. Why? Because of the spiritual state of mind that puts us in a higher place. Self cannot be there. So for me, I want to talk more about what I've recovered from, which is a hopeless state of mind, rather than what I would do to not drink. Now, I understand he's with the banker, and this is probably something that should give him some encouragement. But it says in this phase of difficulties would have made nine of ten men drink their heads off. Why not at least 40 men opportunity to hear my story? And I think that's what we do the same way Bill did back in the doctor's opinion. So look at the banker's reaction. Oh, no, said my friend. This chap is either through with liquor or he's minus a job. I don't I don't know about you, but I don't do real good with threats. You know, you minus you take away my job. I go get another one or I won't have one at all. We'll put the old lady to work. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of how my head thinks. And so if he has your willpower and guts, he will make the grade. And so we see and, and there's one thing that comes to mind to me just in reading that. And I'm going to flip over here to this just for a second on page 20 
in the second to the last paragraph at the very bottom of the page. I'll give you just a second to, to find that, and then we'll pick up right there on page 20, second to the last paragraph where it says this. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. At the back of them, talking about the banker and people like him, is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reaction to alcohol, drugs, lust, whatever it may be, are very different from ours. And we see no difference here on page 138. So either he has your power, your willpower and gut, if he has your willpower and guts, it'll make the grade. So he says, I wanted to throw up my hands in discouragement. Well, if inspiring and encouragement is of the spirit, discouragement, it must be not of the spirit. And so when I throw up my hands in discouragement, I've usually got a bit of an attitude there. And that's usually I'm so I'm being self is beginning to block me from that sunlight. So it says I wanted to throw up my hands in discouragement for I saw that I had failed to help my banker friend understand. There's a whole story behind that. He simply could not believe that his brother executive suffered from a serious illness. There was nothing to do but wait. Well, what always happens to guys like this? <laughs> Presently, the man did slip again, and he was fired. Of course, self, the obsession to alcohol is going to return. We're going to act on that, or acting out, whatever the case may be. We're going to take action based on that, and our reality is always the same. So he's fired. Following his discharge, we contacted him. Without much ado, he accepted the principles and the procedure that had helped us. So we see that the man took actions based on the 12 steps. He had an experience for himself, and hopefully he's recovered. So let's see what he says. He is undoubtedly on the road to recovery. To me, this incident illustrates lack of understanding as to what really ails the alcoholic, because it's not alcohol. If alcohol is the problem, just don't drink it. There shouldn't be a problem anymore, right? If that's the problem, just don't drink. That shouldn't be a problem. But every time I stop drinking, another problem shows up, and it's highly upset. If acting out is my problem, the only thing I need to do is not act out, right? But every time I stop acting out, <laughs> resentment, fear, anger, worry, distress, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Hell has many mansions, too. So, but what really ails the alcoholic is self. Selfish and self-centeredness, page 62 says, that's the root of our trouble. Not alcohol, not drugs, not lust, not overeating, undereating, not any of that stuff. Deading, gambling, selfish self-centeredness driven by fear. So this is what really ails the alcoholic and addict and the lack of knowledge as to what our part employers might profitably take in salvaging their sick employees. Now, if you desire to help, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it. Whether you're a hard drinker, moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, we've seen all those back on page 20 and 21. You may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudice. Those who drink moderately may be more annoyed with the alcoholic than the total abstainer would be. If you've ever been around an alcoholic in his cups when he's drunk and acting stupid and crazy, <laughs> that's an experience that you won't forget. It's very easily easy to become annoyed with us. Very easy. 
He says, drinking occasionally and understanding your own reaction, it is possible for you to quite, become quite sure of many things. I can only do this if I've had a spiritual awakening. That's the only way it's going to be possible for me to become quite sure of many things. And that's the only way that I'm going to be, un, be able to understand my reactions. Because, see, that's the problem. I react. I don't respond. And the third column and resentment inventory shows me this because whenever I begin to look at self-esteem and pride and all these things have been hurt, threatened, injured, or interfered with, I'm going to ask myself this question. What do I do when my pride is affected? Well, for me, I usually attack. I bully. Sometimes I'll isolate. I'll go into depression. I will eat more. I will do this. I will take a little something in the form of a pill to ease my pain, whatever may be coming up. I need to look at my behavior surrounding these things, and then I can come back and answer this question as to what my response to this stuff or my reaction to this stuff is. So it says, Drinking occasionally and understanding your own reactions is possible for you to become quite sure of many things, so far as the alcoholic is concerned, are not always so. Now, as a moderate drinker, which I, I don't relate to, but I know some on here that are, you can take liquor or you can leave it alone. Remember, that was the one thing it talked about back over on page 20. You know, we can either take it or leave it alone. But look at that in another way. Turn that sentence around and look at it this. Hell, I can't take it or leave it alone. Either one. And that's the same way with lust. That's the same way with any other thing that triggers a phenomenon of craving on the inside of me that demands more of the same. I can't take it or leave it alone. But as a moderate, you can. There's some people on here that are not alcoholics, but they're sex addicts. So they can't understand what it is about taking a drink. And, not, you know, they're able to put it away and stop. Well, there are others on here that are alcoholics that aren't sex addicts, and they can absolutely understand about that but they can't understand the phenomenon of craving when it comes to lust because they don't understand that that for some of us that produces a craving which demands more of the same and we're on the internet or whatever it is we do to satisfy that urge so this thing is very deep but it is very rewarding to get on the other side of this and to be able to look back and see see the solution here see god at work so, so it says, so far as the alcoholics concerned are not always so as a moderate drinking, you can take liquor, leave it alone whenever you want to, you control your drinking or acting out or lusting or whatever that may be. For me, that would be a question. Can I do that? If I was reading this chapter, just studying it alone, that would be a question. Can I do that with whatever my ailment, my illness is? And if I can't, <laughs> if I can't have control over it, then it probably means that I've lost the power to choose and control like it talks about in chapter three. So of an evening, you can go on a mall bender, get up in the morning, shake your head and go to your business. To you, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be to anyone else. I can't see that. I can't see certain things that other people suffer from. It says, save the spineless and stupid. When dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance that man can be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you may feel this feeling arising. Even after I've been sober for a long time, I was sitting in an AA meeting one time, and there was a guy came in, 
And man, he was bad. He was a chronic alcoholic. I just love this dude. He was a great dude. And he came in and he was drunk, like always. And he was just having a good time. And one of the older members that was a woman was sitting there and she said, look at this guy. Look at him. Just look at him, David. She said, the doctor told him if he ever drank again, he was going to die. Look at him. He's drunk as hell. And I remember in this book, it talks about that. And I think all of that centers back around where we were at over there on, on page 20 and 21. It says, you know, moderate drinkers have bottom of 20, a little trouble in giving it up. They have a good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. You have a certain type of hard drinker. You might have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him mentally and physically, cause him to die a few years before his time. But really what we see with those people, even guys that have drank for a good amount of years and you would swear up and down they were alcoholic and all of a sudden they get sober and they go on and live life. They really didn't have the allergy the way that some of us do. The obsession of the mind was there, but the allergy was not there. So the body didn't kill them, you know, making them continue to do that over and over. Some of us can relate to that in other areas of life with lust and acting out and, and overeating and undereating and, and whatever it may be. So. Let's go to the bottom paragraph of uh, 139. When dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance. We've already read this. To a man could be so weak, stupid, irresponsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you, you may feel this feeling arise. As you look at the alcoholic in your organization, is many times illuminating. Is he not usually brilliant, fast-thinking, imaginative, and likable? I don't know about any of the alcoholics in your area, but most of them I know are absolutely this way. Most of them are really good, good dudes, and they're definitely lively and, and all of that stuff, imaginative. Think about that with the sexaholic. Oh, my God. That's one of our biggest things is the imagination. And so when sober, does he not work hard and have an act for getting things done? That's a question. If he had these qualities and did not drink, would he be worth retaining? That's a question right there to look at. And think about that with the species that are in our lives. If they didn't do some of the things that they did, they fall back and they fall out and they fall back and they fall out. Would, I mean, would they be worth holding on to? Well, absolutely they would. Should he have the same consideration as other ailing employees? I would think so because he's sick. And so is he worth salvaging? If your decision is yes, for the reason be humanitarian or business or both, the following suggestions helpful. Can, can you disregard the feeling, and I think that's going to be the key word there, that you are dealing only with habit, with stubbornness, or with weak will? I got to get on the other side of that thing. That kind of feeling is false because we're not dealing with habits, stubbornness, or weak will here. We're dealing with spiritual illness, not because of the spirit, because of the common manifestation of self. If this presents difficulty, rereading chapters two and three, where the alcoholic sickness is discussed at length, might be worthwhile. And that's a pretty good idea to do, especially if you're working with a new guy that can't seem to get it for whatever reason. I don't really want to go back and begin all the way down to the front and try to rework the person through. I want to go back to chapters two and three, like this is saying, and I want to take a close look 
at this with them. It, it has been my experience that this is very helpful. Now, you as a businessman want to know the necessities before considering the result. That's common. If you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? I think until that's done, no matter whether you're at work, at home, in the program, wherever you're at, until forgiveness has taken place, really, there's just always going to be a, a spirit of discouragement. There just always will. Can his past absurdities be forgotten? I want that from God. I just do. I want complete, total forgiveness, never be brought up charge again. Yeah. I should be more than willing to do the same thing for my brother, and I fall short of that many times. I really do. I think we all do. Can it be appreciated that he has been the victim? Look at this. He has been the victim of crooked thinking. One of the very few times this book's going to talk about you and I being a victim. Not of alcohol, not of drugs, not of lust, of crooked thinking. We're going to call that self. Directly caused by the action of alcohol on his brain. Well, every action is born in thought. So it always, it had to begin with thought. It just had to. I well remember the shock I received when a prominent doctor in Chicago told me of cases where pressure of the spinal fluid actually ruptured the brain. <laughs> That's pretty good information to know, but it really doesn't mean a lot when I'm in the middle of my sickness. I don't really care. I put myself in places where disease could very easily get me. And it's not because I don't want to live and it's not because I hate everybody. It's because I'm a victim of crooked thinking and I take actions based on that crooked thinking and I end up with a crooked outcome every single time. No wonder the alcoholic is strangely irrational. Who wouldn't be with such a fevered brain? Normal drinkers are not so affected, nor can they understand the abbreviations of an alcoholic. Your man has probably been trying to conceal a number of scrapes, perhaps pretty messy ones. Self tries to manage and control and clean all this up, put all these fires out. I still want to put another one out, but there's one burning over here and I got to get back over here. And it's just a big rat race. That's what happened to me in my sexual addiction there at the very end. I was chasing so many fires trying to put it out that they all ignited again and burnt me to the ground. <laughs> I wasn't even paying attention to it. So, yeah, he's been trying to. So I don't think it's him that's trying to conceal the number of scrapes. I think it's self. I think it's that mental activity within. That, that tries to do this, perhaps a pretty messy one. They may be disgusting. You may be at a loss to understand how much a seemingly above-board chap could be so involved, but these scrapes can generally be charged, no matter how bad, to an abnormal action of alcohol in his mind. But for guys like me, when you take alcohol out of the body and don't do anything with the mind, then the ideas are going to come back at some point. I said in meeting after meeting after meeting, and for some reason, I don't seem to be getting better. I seem to be getting worse. And I'm trying to work the steps, and I'm trying to go through the process, and I'm falling back, and I'm relapsing, I'm relapsing, I'm relapsing. I can't get out of relapsing. It's like, what the hell is wrong? Why? I mean, I'm doomed. I mean, my mind tells me you're doomed. No one ever said, David, let me show you steps 10 and 11, and we're going to begin right there. I want you to start watching for these things on a daily basis every day. And I want you to get a hold of me when these things pop up in your mind. And if you've hurt somebody, I want you to apologize. And I want you to 
turn your thoughts. Every time something comes up, turn your thoughts to someone you would have. No one ever told me about any of that. And so I'm sitting in meeting after meeting. I'm going through the book in the process. And I'm not getting any better. So my natural thought absolutely becomes from self. Program doesn't work. There's no point in me even being here. And I go out and just try to kill myself with whatever it is I'm doing. And it's just, uh, it's, it's very disturbing. So when drinking or getting over about an alcoholic, sometimes the model of honesty when he's normal. Well, I don't know about this man or any other man. That's not my case. I become very, I become as dishonest sober as I do drunk without this spiritual solution called an awakening. Afterwards, his revulsion will be terrible. Nearly always these antics indicate nothing more than temporary condition. There's a promise. Well, that's not to say that all alcoholics are honest and upright when they're not drinking. I don't know. <laughs> Very many. Of course, that isn't so, and such people not often may impose upon you. Seeing your attempt to understand and help, remember the little lady that I talked about? That's exactly what I did to her. Some men will try to take advantage of your kindness. Watch for this. If you are sure your man does not want to stop, he may as well be discharged the sooner the better. Absolutely so. I expect that today. You're not doing him any favors by keeping him on. Firing such an individual may prove to be a blessing for him. Why? Because it may drive me to hit the bottom quicker. It may be just the jolt he needs. I know in my particular case that nothing my company could have done would have stopped me for so long as I was able to hold my position. I could not possibly realize how serious my situation was. Had they fired me first and had they taken steps to see that I was presented with the solution contained in this book. Now, here's something I agree with Hank Pion for sure. If I had been presented with the solution contained in the book, not thank God for the meetings, but we're not talking about the meetings. We're talking about the program as outlined in the book. He says I might have returned to them six months later. Oh, well, man. So. We'll just stop right there for now, and I, I hope it's given you a little deeper insight to the chapter than maybe you've seen before, or maybe not, maybe. But please share with us. If not, I know we're going to go into some questions and answers, and, and really, you know, I, I like to hear your experience, strength, and hope if you have any. So thank you, everybody, for letting me come out to share. I appreciate it. This concludes David's share on tonight's chapter, but we encourage you to keep listening as he answers questions from the audience and shares additional experience, strength, and hope. David, I just wanted to thank you so much for all of the history um, that you have shared over the past 35 weeks. I definitely learned some new things tonight about Hank P and where he was from and what he did. So I did have one quick question about that, but other things I wanted to say. Is, is that from like AA comes of age or did you pick things up from Joe and Charlie? Like what's been your experience there? Well, absolutely. I had a wealth of knowledge and understanding and, and informational library in Charlie. And I used that quite often. So a lot of the uh, things that I will share was, was things that he shared with me, but like, you know, any alcoholic drunk or sober, I just didn't only take his word for it. I, I looked at that very closely. So AA comes of age, the, the language of the heart, you know, all of these books, whenever you get into them later on and you begin to read and study, it really starts to back up and support the things that, that we're talking about here. So AA Comes of Age is a big one for the history. And so I encourage anybody, you know, to take a good look at that book because it definitely backs up everything here. But yes, you know, 
from Charlie and then checking it out on my own as well. That's how I found out, you know, who he was. I knew for a long time who he was, but I really didn't even know that his last name was Parkhurst. I didn't know that he was from Stafford. I didn't know that, you know, he was, he had worked in the oil industry, you know, that I didn't know any of that stuff. So for me, whenever I'm studying the book, I I always want to have the facts of that available because somebody's going to call you on it for sure. (laughs) So anyway, that's been my experience. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, I did have just quickly wanted to share on my own experience with this. Um, As you were going through 137, maybe it was 138. One of those pages, I just never really seen this before to take out the word like employee and just put sponsee in there. And it really was speaking to some experience that I've been going through recently. Uh, But also just in applying the principles um, in the program, I had gotten fired from acting out back in July of 2021. I worked the program in about five months and then got rehired with that company. Um, so I just wanted to share that, that this book really does work. It's been what changed my life. And so just, yeah, appreciate you letting me share, but anything you, you want to comment on or we'll go to someone else. Yeah, just go ahead and pass it on. Ash. Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for you though, sharing that experience because I know that I've been fired for many, 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 many jobs for drinking and the other things that I've done acting out and stuff like this. But the good news is, you know, we have a chance to make that right. And today, I'm one of the better employees of my company. They call on me a lot. They really do. They know that I tell the truth, sometimes not always in love. But, you know, I've, I've, been wor- I've worked on that <laughs> as best I could. And things are much better in that area for me than before. But it doesn't matter where I go today. Like, you know, I know today, if God forbid, I lost my job today. Within 30 minutes, I'd have a job today. There's not a doubt in my mind. And that's huge. Or someone like I was. So thank you. I, I, I just want to um, share my gratitude for hearing such um, wonderful wisdom this evening. Uh, I relate very very strongly to this uh, this particular chapter. I, I worked for one of America's best employees in Europe for many many years, and uh, they're still held up globally as as one of the most ethical companies to work for. And back in 1998, I was literally at the end of a rope, uh, well, metaphorically speaking, but dangerously so, according to the people I was talking to. And it was wonderful how they they rescued me and just said, go, go to your treatment centre. I went to Cottonwood. And um, it was the start of my um, wellness. I wouldn't say totally cured or anything like that because I'm still quite capable of being a complete loon. But um, I, I lost a very good friend. They found him in the trunk of his car. Um, he committed suicide. And this, this illness is so, it thrives in, in corporate businesses. I mean, employ, employers, and in my experience, the people who employed me were addicts themselves. They love the dynamism, dynamism and, and energy and drive and determination to succeed, which I know I have as an addict, alcoholic and sex addict. And I mean, it was, it's, quite, um, it's quite dangerous, really, when I consider how far I still am capable of pushing myself, even at my age. Um, but uh, I just wanted to say 
but having listened to you tonight, you um, brought such sense to this chapter for me. I've lived in this chapter. I've lived through it. And, you know, thank God there, there is this, this fellowship. There's this wisdom that people like yourself can implant into my mind because I don't get this each and every time uh, and I need to keep listening. But also I'm grateful for there, that there are corporations, particularly here in America and I know in England as well, that actually do have a strong ethos of helping addictive people, as Ashley just rightly demonstrated, within five months she was re-employed. I was sent to a treatment centre with their blessing. And that was back in, let's say, the dark ages of 99. So, um, yeah, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful to be here tonight. Thank you very much indeed. It's wonderful to hear you. So I have a quick question regarding um, what you read on page 141, where it says, if you are sure the man does not want to stop, he may, may as well be discharged. The sooner the better. You are not doing him a favor by keeping him on. Now, I realize it's talking about a boss with an employee, an employer to an employee. But when I go back to page 35, it mentions the fact that they would work with this man on page 35. On each occasion, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He was drunk a half a dozen times in succession. Is the difference between that, these two situations, is one is what the employer is doing with the employee, and the other is what the man in treatment is getting from um, his help, the people that are around him to help. Is that the difference between the two instead of keeping on trying and trying and trying? I know that yeah. Ashley mentioned sponsee and, and when this has been read in other meetings, it talks about the sponsor firing the sponsee. Yeah, that's a very good question because that's exactly, it, it's not talking about a employer employee relationship here on 35. It's talking about them doing a 12 step call on this man named Jim. I, I love this story and, and I love what you read on on each of these occasions we work with him that's I mean that's wonderful you don't really find that a whole lot in our fellowship today I'm even guilty of that myself you know not carrying on and on and on with people reviewing carefully what had happened so yeah absolutely it's talking about two different things here the employer not being an alcoholic probably isn't going to continue to do that over and over and over especially if you're losing money and business for my company. I mean, I've got no other choice but then to let you go. Now, if that's me one-on-one -on -one working with a person, absolutely, I want to take and try as much time as I can to help him get sober and continue to stay that way. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely two different situations. 